0: What's happening weirdos? Moby! Can you believe it? I'm so excited. I've been a fan of his for a very long time and I reached out and he said yes and here we are and I'm excited. I do want to say so much is happening in the world. Uh, This episode was recorded a couple months ago so it's not uh, topical. I don't know if you've noticed this phenomenon that anything that isn't like anything older than 15 seconds is like well this is useless because everything's changing so rapidly. Uh, So let's just enjoy The nostalgia of not today. Uh, no issues really. Uh, no updates, nothing critical. Um, just a good old fashioned You Made It Weird where we talk about art and, uh, God and all that good stuff. And boy, did I love my chat with, uh, I didn't call him Mobitious in the episode, but I'm gonna call him Mobitious here in the intro. This episode is brought to us by our wonderful Pete's Picks. People always ask me how to support the show. It's always a free show. I always tell them the best thing to do is to try one of the Pete's Picks. And we have a new one which is our friend at Brook Linen. I don't know if you've ever said to yourself, like, hey, you know what I really love? I love that I have the same few pairs of sheets uh, that I had uh, just since after college and I never really liked them and they have holes in them and they're scratchy and they stink. Uh, and I wash them maybe once a month and I just put them back on my bed like that's normal. Uh, well stop it. Brooke Linen can make that voice in your head and the sheets on your bed go away. Brooklinen was started by Rich and Vicky, who also tried to find beautiful home essentials that did not cost an arm and a leg. And when they couldn't, they founded Brooklinen as the first direct-to-consumer bedding company. They work directly with manufacturers to make luxury available directly to you without the luxury-level markups. Brooklinen has a variety of sheets, colors, patterns, and materials to fit your needs and tastes. Brooklinen is so confident that you will love their products They even offer a 365-day money-back guarantee. In case you're not from Earth, that's a year. A year money-back guarantee. That's how incredible and wonderful and cool-looking and great-feeling these sheets are. Brooklinen's biggest sale of the year, they just started with us, and it's happening right now. If you've got people on your list who are hard to please like I do, go to brooklinen.com and check out their entire selection of bedding, and towels, loungewear, and more. They've even got candles, silk eye masks, which are incredible, robes, and more to give your picky, weird aunt <laughs> a spa day at home. Plus, there's always the trusty gift card, and Brooklinen has those as well. These are incredible sheets. I was one of these people that hadn't upgraded my sheets. It makes me feel like a grown-up. Makes me feel like I'm staying in a luxury hotel right here at home. And I love them. And I look forward to sleep impossibly even more than I used to. So Brooklinen's Black Friday sale goes through November 30th. Get huge savings, 20% off, and free shipping during Brooklinen's biggest sale of the year. Go to Brooklinen, b r o o k l i n e n dot com, and enter promo code Weird for 20% off. It's pretty dope. And uh it's off plus free shipping. That's brooklinen.com use promo code weird at checkout. One last time, brooklinen.com weird is the promo code for 20% off and free shipping. Uh that's it. That's all that's all you want. And if it's uh, if you're hearing this after November 30th, don't worry, you can still get 10% off your first order plus free shipping at brooklinen.com with the same code. With the sign code. Also brought to us by our friends at Honey. I know we're all doing a lot of online shopping these months especially so this is why I'm so grateful that my browser has Honey installed. It's a free browser extension that scours the internet for you so you don't have to do goofy Weird blacklisted promo code searches like I used to. It scours the internet safely and quickly for you and automatically applies the best ones available at checkout. It's easy. It's free. It's basically your online shopping best friend. It's free money in your pocket. Here's what you do. Go to, to get honey on your computer for free. Two easy clicks. Go to joinhoney.com slash weirdo. Then when you're shopping, at one of its over 30,000 supported sites, Honey will pop up and all you have to do is click apply coupons. Wait a few seconds. Honey searches for the coupons. I said coupons. Coupons the first time. Now I'm saying coupons. It finds coupons. I'm doing it both ways as to not offend. For that site, if Honey finds working codes, it'll apply the best one for your cart. I just bought a new pair of headphones. I got it an electronic superstore. I can't be too specific here. Uh, but it saved me about 12, 14, 15 bucks for doing nothing for something that I just had on my browser automatically saved me about 15 bucks. Incredible. Honey has found over 17 million members and over given them over $2 billion in savings. They work for all kinds of retailers from tech. Like I just said, gaming sites, fashion brands, even food delivery. It's simple. If you have a computer, honey should be on it. It's free and works with whatever browser you use. You can get honey for free today and show your support of the show by going to joinhoney.com slash weirdo. That's joinhoney.com slash weirdo. That's gotta be the easiest way to support the show. That's a free thing? Come on. That's that's it. That's the deal. Also on our podcast, we have a couple new ones, and we have our oldest Pete Speck, or one of the oldest. Which is our friends at Onnit, the makers of Alpha Brain, the nootropic that I swear by for the past five, six, seven years now. I haven't done a podcast, I haven't written a script, I haven't done stand-up, I haven't even gone on a date with Val where I want to be alert and clear uh, without taking two or three Alpha Brain fifteen minutes before I want to feel it working, and you really do feel it working. It's earth-grown ingredients. There's no caffeine. It's not a stimulant. It won't keep you awake. It won't make you jittery. It just gives your brain the nutrients that it needs to function at its peak performance. It's incredible. I totally swear by it and absolutely feel the difference between taking it and not taking it. It's real science stuff. That's my... (laughs) This is me ad-libbing. That's real science, meaning they've scoured the, the earth for the best stuff for your noodle for focus, for concentration, for recall. Um, I often get compliments. It's really sweet on how much I remember of what I read. I think it has a lot to do with alpha brain. That is a new phenomenon in my life. So if I'm reading something, if I'm working on something, writing something, I always take it, and it gives me such an edge. I wish I knew about it in college, and I'm so glad I know about it now. And the best way to, to figure out if it's good for you, try it. Go to Onnit, O-N-N-I-T dot com slash weird, and you will see a bevy of products that they make. Everything on that landing page will give you uh, 10% off your checkout right there. Boom. You showed your support of this show, which I deeply appreciate, and you're going to get your noodle up to speed, which I think is so important, especially if you're a creative person or making anything that involves your brain, which has got to be most of us. Uh, All right. (laughs) That's it. Those are the sponsors. I'm so happy to share this episode with you. It was such a delight to talk with Moby, and I hope you enjoy it. If you enjoyed it, if you enjoy it, one-tenth as much as I did, you're going to you're gonna shit yourself. <laughs> I'm so tired. Leela just kicked my butt. Oh, it took a long time to put her down tonight, and Val is on a meditation retreat, which I'm sure we'll talk about on Friday for the We Made It Weird, but I, I've been alone with her for a couple days now, and uh, I don't know if you can tell. I'm kind of running on fumes. Plus, like I said, there's so much going on in the news, uh, my screen time is doubled. I'm not doing so great on the old screen time. All right, guys. Enjoy my chat with Moby. Get into it.
1: Oh, I love that neighborhood.
0: Yeah, it's it's, uh, my favorite part of L.A. for sure. And I'm lucky I get Um, there. Less so
1: today because the air smells like burning and... (laughs) <laughs> it's like sort of as dark as Glasgow in the middle of the winter. Is it really? It's it's pretty grim, yeah.
0: I can't handle that. It's so spooky. 2020 is already so spooky, and now we have like the soundscape or the visualscape of the feeling of the year happening. Yeah, it's,
1: uh, and I, I was talking to um, an African-American friend of mine, and the reason I qualify it by saying that, Is because he had a comment that seemed so germane. Like the slogan for 2020 is "I can't breathe."
0: Oh my god! Yeah, right. You know,
1: whether it's COVID-related, whether it's George Floyd, whether it's fires, whether it's Amazon burning, it's sort of like just this recurring thing of like no one can. Whether people are having panic attacks, et cetera, it's just this constant sort of respiratory issue
0: and isn't it funny i feel like this is up your alley you tell me first of all pleasure to be speaking with you uh i think you're wonderful um i breathing is an interconnectivity issue i I, i'm sure you're aware of this it's like i find it so confusing that we cut down trees because we've lost that sort of connection that intuitive connection to the earth being like our air comes from these plants And the more and more disconnected we get from one another, which is racism, or uh, without information, which might be COVID, all these different things like breathing is something that's helped by connectivity. Does that make sense? Yeah. um... (laughs) That was a loaded, yeah. I didn't mean to put you on the spot to be like, do you believe my hippie theory? I just mean like, can't you see that like one of the problems is division and so a respiratory co-partner to that seems sort of like eerily appropriate.
1: Well, it's funny. I uh to sort of match your your hippie soliloquy. Love um, it. <laughs> so I have this shameful ritual is before I go to bed every night, I take, I don't know, 15 minutes of sort of like reading some spiritual literature. Um, sort of taking an inventory of the day, doing some 12-step work, and lately I've been reading uh, Thich Nhat Han, mm-hmm. and he keeps coming back to this idea of, like, return to the breath. And in a way, that annoys me because in sort of maybe pursuant to what you were saying, where it's like, I don't like that idea. Like, I don't want to be reminded, like breathing should just be something we ignore, but clearly it's something we can't ignore.
0: It's everything. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, when you look at like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like underpinning the whole thing is being able to breathe. Like you can live without water for a couple of days. You can live without food for a month and a half. You can live without air for a couple, like a minute or two at best.
0: Right. And to Thich Nhat Hanh, this is sort of his flavor, is that's a big clue from the universe, is, is inhale, exhale. It's give and take. It's quiet mm-hmm. and noise. It's, it's black and white. We live in a world of opposites, right? And I've said this many times on the show, but one of the problems with capitalism is that we want to just be like this. <sighs> we just want inhale. So there's no exhale, like corporations yes. are supposed to build and build and build and build and build, but there's no like release back or there should be. Oh, dumb question. So, so for the podcast,
1: so we've started recording, right?
0: Yeah. I hope that's okay. It's <laughs> it's not like a gotcha moment, <laughs> but yes, is no, it? No, it's, it's fine. Okay? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, you know, and again, what I know about you, um, so briefly. What I know about you is that you have obviously a very successful career as a comedian.
0: Mm. Is that correct? Right. That's correct. Yeah, I'm a stand-up comedian. Um,
1: and but you also have a sort of odd, tangentially spiritual Christian background approach to things.
0: That's correct. Okay.
1: <laughs> um, so. Yeah, because thus far, like, I haven't done too many podcast interviews, but usually comedians, there's that effort to be funny at all times.
0: Yeah, sure. No, it's, it's know, maybe the worst thing about us as a people. <laughs> well,
1: and I love, I mean, trust me, I love good stand up and I love great comedians and great writers, but it gets exhausting when everything is going through this filter of am I being Am I funny and am I convincing people that I'm funny?
0: Moby, it's exhausting and I'm I'm 41 and it's taken a lot of work, inner, outer, spiritual, just also psychological, therapy, all that sort of stuff to fucking hang it up. And that's one of the things I've admired about you is you seem to have found a balance. I actually enjoyed when I was like, oh, I think you're wonderful. And you just sort of took that and I was like, oh, that's great. He, like a comedian would be like, really? Uh, which album? <laughs> have you heard the new one (laughs) you know that's that's what we're like
1: so quick question and then i wanted to get back to your breathing and capitalism (laughs) point what are you eating
0: frozen blueberries Uh, i can't i want to are you do you ever just eat a bowl of frozen blueberries because i want to talk about it
1: yes i do but you know what um i think might be the single greatest food ever invented on the planet please tell me frozen black and red grapes
0: frozen black and red grapes never done it
1: it's because the blueberries are great but the grapes because they have they're wetter you know they have more moisture yeah they freeze but be- like they they don't they don't freeze as thoroughly as the blueberries like they still have this almost like gelato texture so like whoa get- find a good organic grape store and buy a bunch (laughs) of black and red organic grapes and freeze them and gild Like it, If I were on death row, that might be my last meal. is just a bowl of frozen
0: grapes. Wow. I Um, think it's it's really surprising what an itch it scratches. Like I can struggle with sugar and stuff like that, especially late at night, especially if I've done a show or I feel proud of myself. and And there's this weird story we tell ourselves that we deserve a treat. You did something scary. I'm sure you can relate to this. You performed for a lot of people. Now you deserve something special. And I think it's true that the human... Uh, body responds good to a system responds well to a system where you get something that you weren't eating all day and you get it at the end of the day. We like that, but I used to be something like I would eat, um, uh, like a sweet treat, like a sugar treat. And now I just have the blueberries, which sounds so lame and boring, but I actually really, really love it. And I've been getting.
1: My my treat used to be that I would just eat a lot of cocaine. (laughs) That's Uh, a good one. So one good thing about, so I, uh, my friend, Neil Bernard, he's a doctor and he has this organization called the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. And the last time I had dinner with him, he's based in DC. I asked the question, cause like grapes, blueberries, you know, technically they are high in sugar, but they don't negatively impact the body at all because of their antioxidants and their fiber. So like grapes are, really sweet, but they don't cause any sort of glycemic spike or like an insulin response because of the fiber and the antioxidants. So you're allowed to eat as basically as many frozen blueberries or grapes.
0: (laughs) I'm like super happy to hear you say that. I've heard the fiber thing too, which is why it's dangerous to drink a glass of orange juice, which might have like 50 oranges because there's no fiber to slow down the so the liver gets involved in all these things and then fat is gets involved uh to store all that energy so so going back a bit you
1: mentioned this idea of sort of like the the intersectionality i just like using that word even though i don't fully know what it means um <laughs> the crossroads I don't even know if- I also don't know if I'm allowed, like as a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant middle-aged man, I don't know if I'm allowed to use words like intersectionality, but we'll, in any bleep, case,
0: we'll, we'll bleep it out. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <It's good time.
1: laughs> yeah. Can I have like politically correct bleeping? Like I would love um, that. <laughs> I, yeah, so you mentioned this intersectionality of breathing and capitalism, that idea. And I would say this is something... I'm a little bit obsessed with is because capitalism in and of itself, it's just, it's a thing, but the flaw is what people expect it to do. Mm. And what I mean by that is, you know, almost everything. And forgive me if I sound like a presumptuous pedantic former philosophy major, but that's what (laughs) I am. Um, own it. Almost, Own it, Mubs. You're in a safe space. I love this. <laughs> okay. So almost, almost everything, and this is very self-evident, is a response to the baffling existential questions of the human condition, which is, what should we be doing? What has meaning? Is meaning even possible? And that's from, you know, the lure of fame, of sex, of drugs, of rampant unrestrained capitalism, of materialism—all these things—it's all our way of sort of like pretending that the void doesn't exist.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. You know
1: what I mean? Like, yes, it's, it's saying like, and obviously, there are so many people who go down that ra- oopsie, go down that rabbit hole, and it doesn't work for them, and then they have to figure something else out.
0: That's why it's always a dark night of the soul the first time you do a late night show or or a big performance. Like that usually a lot of comedians know, hey, call that person because they're they're having that very bittersweet experience where it's like you've reached the top of the mountain and you're still you and you're still floating in infinity. Yeah, for sure.
1: Yeah. And the only thing you find when you reach the top of the mountain is you're, you took your brain with you, and it's the same crazy dysfunctional brain you had at the bottom of the
0: mountain, mm-hmm. but you don't know where to go. Well, I think a really good question is, is there meaning in meaninglessness? Because when I was young, if you said, we're just dust, I would be freaked out by that because I was still young and really wanted to prove my legitimacy. And I wanted to buy things and own things. I wanted to say, this is my house. This is Pete's car, all that stuff. Because I believe that that would work. But now if you tell me that you and I are dust, that you and I are just like swarms of molecules that are gifted with consciousness and we're talking, and and really if we zoom out far enough, it's very, very tiny or very, very large, depending on which way we go. I actually find meaning in that meaninglessness. I wonder if you can relate to that. Yeah, I, I find great comfort
1: in it in a way. Yeah, me too. Lar- largely because the meaninglessness of the dust, you know, the quanta, the, you know, the the subatomic or the, even like the unseen world, mm. the quote unquote meaningless of that is so much more interesting than the meaning created by humans.
0: That's right. If you're nothing, you're everything. If you're, and, if you're, if you're not Moby, if you are just quanta, if you're quarks and squarks and all the things we don't even have names for, that means where can you go that you're not every single thing? Like you, you, you just became a drop of water put in the ocean. And now it's only your story that's separating you from anything.
1: Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I completely agree. And it's, it's interesting because you can either, at least for me, it's like the, there's this tendency to go in either direction of like, be a complete worldly materialist where you just want tons of different people to touch your private genital area. (laughs) And you just want to take tons of drugs and drink and be on the receiving end of accolades and buy a lot of stuff that clearly doesn't work. But then the other end is the sort of the, the, the renunciation of everything. And what I find is, for me and for, you know, some of the people around me is this sort of compassionate middle ground where you acknowledge the void, you acknowledge that we're all dust, um, but you also acknowledge the sad, insecure longing that makes us want stuff, that makes us want, you know, to go to a nightclub at two o'clock in the morning and have people invite us home for drugs and sex,
0: you know, like, that's right. Because I grew up, as you already mentioned, in the in the kind of the fundamentalist evangelical tradition, and we thought that like lust, for example, was a very bad thing. Later, I I learned. Usually, a Jewish scholar would tell me like that is the yearning of the universe; it's its attraction to itself. So you can actually say, "This is Stephen Mitchell." You can say "lahaim" to some when you appreciate sexual beauty. Like it doesn't have to be like a naughty or a bad thing. So it's that middle ground. I think it's interesting though, that it goes back to what we were saying about breathing when you get drunk or if you take drugs, that's certainly filling up in a certain good feeling, but the hangover and the down speaks to the exhale of it. There is no code that we figured out to feeling good, forever there's no infinite jest you know what i mean there's no like oh now i can just float and goop because even if we could make you feel fantastic at a certain point you're going to plateau and that'll just be your new normal for all we know the way you and i feel right now is fantastic to a snail or a bird or something you know like we don't know so that speaks to the in out in out but you're saying it's a dangerous game to play like i only want in i only want up i only want Big. I only want good. I want people to touch my genitals. I want to f- take drugs. But isn't it, doesn't it feel like a clue back to the breath? It's a clue from the universe. You can't do it forever. I mean, you said cocaine. What was that like for you? You had to learn that lesson that it was like, this doesn't work.
1: Yeah. I mean, nothing is more exciting than thinking you found a way to opt out from the human condition. <laughs> you know, right. And, right. and basically, all the stuff we're talking about, you know, whether that was, you know, whether it's career, whether it's money, whether it's stuff, whether it's drugs, whether it's fame, it's like all of these things, when you first experience them, you get that dopamine rush and you think, Oh, I found it. You know, like I found the thing. um, Like I, I, I put out a couple of memoirs that were sort of, trying to look at this, these issues Mm -hmm. and I'm paraphrasing myself, which is definitely a sign of both like forgetfulness and narcissism. (laughs) Um, But I think I said something in one of the books, like, you know, all I wanted was to remain young and beloved and incredibly famous and successful for every day of my life. Was that too much to ask? Right. Right. You know, and, well, the un- yeah. and the universe, what's interesting, it makes me think of like a baby being weaned from its mother's breast, you know, which the Bible obviously uses that metaphor a lot. Mm. Um, but I've never had a baby, but apparently when babies are being weaned, they don't like it. That's right. But the mother loves the child and says, "You, I have to wean you, you That's know, true. like this is, you know, like you can't be 20 years old and breastfeeding. Right. Maybe in some, like, I don't know, white supremacist cult. They still do that. I don't know. But <laughs> but it's that same way, like, and it's, maybe I'm anthropomorphizing the universe, but that same thing of, like, we find these small things that, that work for us, drugs, sex, money, whatever, and the universe doesn't punish us. It says, oh, you're better than that.
0: That's like fucking it.
1: Oh, I love Like that. you, like, like these are small things. It's not like saying, like, it's not the universe has this stern, indifferent, saying, like, how dare you have fun? How dare you experience these things? It's the universe saying, like, no, this isn't how things work. This isn't what it means to be human, you know?
0: I, I couldn't love that more. I've heard Ram Dass, uh, one of my great teachers, talks about the the time that the breast goes dry. So the milk runs out uh, on your mother and that's your first feeling of separation. Like if, if, if milk isn't coming out or if you're being weaned, that is where we sort of get that cold awakening to like, oh, there's coming in and then there's going out. But I love what you said that it's not the point. The point isn't just to feel good. As you said, be famous, feel good, you reminded me of this Alan Watts quote that I love where he said, if you could have your way, right, if you could, young Moby, if you could just be famous and successful and revered and young and healthy and have energy and do drugs or what, and have money, whatever it is, if you could really do that for as long as you want, how many hundreds of years would you do it? Like, let, Let's be generous. You could say maybe 200 years you would do that but this reminds me of the story of the buddha eventually there would be a yearning for something more so i love what you're saying like things that give us pleasure even if it is something as mild as i buy a new ipad and it does make me kind of feel happy for a while i like playing with it all that sort of stuff it's not to punish us when it when that fades and starts making me feel empty it's to, it's a clue the universe is guiding us along that's anthropomorphizing but i'm saying Who's anthropomorph- Who's anthropomorphizing what? I am part of the universe. So it stands to reason that there would be clues in our anatomy and our relationships as to, as to how the whole works, right?
1: Yeah, as above, so below.
0: That's it. You're the first guest to say that before me. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Why shouldn't our breathing? Why shouldn't? Why is it when I listen to your music, I, I was watching this great, you made a great YouTube video of a making of. Um, it was the second one you did from your new album. Uh, the song is uh, called Morning,
1: Morningside. That's what I was looking for. Forgive it's me. An, it's an easy title to not remember because it doesn't actually say the word Morningside anywhere in the song.
0: That's right. Do you ever play that game when you hear a song on the radio or Pandora or whatever that you haven't heard before and you try and guess what it's called? And you're like, they well, sure are saying Flex a lot. This is probably called Flex.
1: <laughs> um, because I'm old and I like the comfort of the familiar. I only use Spotify to listen to songs I already know.
0: <laughs> that's great.
1: <laughs> like, I, when I first got streaming services, I thought, oh, I'll find out about all this new music and then I'm listening to the new wave playlists that basically I listened to when I was 15 years old.
0: I One of the first things I threw on when I got Spotify was Operation Ivy and I'm like, what? I'm 15 years old again. That That's a ridiculous use ...of every song. But this kind of goes back to what we were saying. We're not really pleasure addicts as much as we're novelty addicts, novelty and pleasure. Like somebody pointed out to me that porn pornography addiction is really more about novelty addiction, which is why we see straight people looking at gay porn, is it's not because they're gay, it's because they, they just want to be shocked. Your, your dopamine is no longer firing when you see a curvy, beautiful woman or a buff man, whatever is your preference that doesn't do it for you anymore. It's actually something I read about, which is dopamine fasting. I don't know if you know about that. It's sort of what meditation retreats are. Um,
1: I don't know. I mean, like it, it's funny because I love neuroscience and I love talking about the role of dopamine and serotonin Um what I have learned, though, is like these are really complicated neurotransmitters. And so I use them to think like dopamine, and serotonin, make you feel good. But apparently it's certainly it's, it's more nuanced than that. But I'm sure. interested in what dopamine, dopamine fasting. OK, so please tell me more. I'm trying to figure out what it sure. is. But then I realize you know what it is. So why don't I just ask you what <laughs> it is?
0: I know what that is. I love playing that game. It's It's a conversation. You try to be right on top of me. I love that. Um, it's basically taking one day a week, no phone, no TV. You just read, uh, relax, meditate, sleep, uh, go on walks, be in nature. And if you do that, if it's one of your seven days every week, um, the rewards that you get when you return to those activities will really spike. So it's sort of like people who don't Uh, I know I've done this where I won't, I'm not a big weed smoker, but if I go months without smoking weed and then I smoke weed, it's really great. And we're Mm -hmm. back to our cues from the universe. If I smoke weed every day, it's just, what the fuck am I doing? This sucks.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's so I, I got sober about 12 years ago and it was not, it was not a fun process, but I'm thrilled that I was able to go through it and remain sober. But it did sort of introduce a concept that I hadn't really thought of, which is that, you know, the things that make me feel good might not be good for me.
0: Body. And so. Can Luckily, I just, I have to stop you because I've been saying that on this podcast, just because you feel good doesn't mean you're doing good. I say that yeah. all the time. That was like an epiphany I had when I was stoned where I was like, my body feels great, but there's a part of me that knows this is some bullshit. I wrote it on a post that I wrote, these aren't epic nights. Like staying in and eating Chinese food, watching a bad movie is not something when I'm like old- I'm going to remember that lesson you learned from that, although here I am learning a lesson. Keep going. Um, I'm so sorry to interrupt.
1: Oh, um, but luckily, like by getting sober, and I don't advocate sobriety for anyone who doesn't need it. Like if you can drink and do drugs and lead a normal life, great, like more power to you. Like I I have nothing against alcohol and drugs. I just know that I can't do them. Mm. But by getting sober, I learned to sort of, potentially have a different relationship towards the things that I had benign associations with and compulsive associations with. And so luckily, when I recognize that now, I try to intervene and create some discipline. Like, for example, I, like many people, can be a compulsive news consumer. Mm. You know, like left to my own devices. I will look at the New York Times, Washington Post, BBC, Nate Silver's site, Politico, The Hill, 30 times a day. Mm -hmm. Like, I can go insane. Like, first thing in the morning, last thing before bed, checking real clear politics, checking all these things. And I realized, like, oh, it's just, it's compulsive. Like, pure compulsion, because there's nothing I can do with this information except get upset. Mm -hmm. And so... I've put myself on a fast where I'm not allowed to look at the news until November 4th. I think that's fantastic. That's fantastic. And and like regarding the phone, I have this discipline that I try to adhere to. I'm only allowed to look at my phone five times a day.
0: Wow. I love that. The
1: funny thing about that. So I don't care. I don't bring my phone with me when I go hiking. I don't bring it into the studio. I don't like, and it's, it's great, but the really nice thing, alluding to what you were talking about, is when I do look at my phone, I actually really enjoy it.
0: That's right. It, buddy, uh, you are the perfect guest for this podcast. I'm just thrilled. We could end now, and I would be like, that was one of my favorite episodes because we're hitting the things that are relevant. It's philosophical without being up its own ass. This matters. Like When we look at our phone constantly, when we look at our news constantly, when we look at our our socials constantly, it's not just that it's bad for you, you stop enjoying it. It doesn't work yeah. anymore. You're chasing. And then you actually catch yourself hoping for someone to say something mad, uh, bad, like, oh, Moby, you're, you stink. And then you're like, oh, at least I felt something. You're kind of subconsciously yes. chasing novelty. It's not pornography. It's novelty. It's not uh, a bad thing in and of itself, like you were saying about drugs and alcohol. What is our relationship? What did you say? Is it compulsive or is it... I mean
1: it's tricky because you, you always, or at least I always have to ask myself, is my relationship to this stimuli benign or is it compulsive? You know, is it healthy or is it desperate? You know, for example, when I used to drink, if I had one drink, I had to have 15.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Like there was no in between, you know, like Uh if I went out drinking and doing drugs at 10 o'clock at night, I came home at eight in the morning. Wow. Never. There's no in between, you know, like that's compulsion. Whereas I love chocolate cake. If I have one piece of chocolate cake, I don't feel the need to go out and have 18 more. Wow. You know, if I watch one episode of 30 rock, I don't watch any more like that's So I'm like, okay, this is, these are things that make me happy but I can have a non-compulsive sort of benign relationship with them as opposed to like, I've had to cut myself off from certain things. Like I don't read reviews because I can't handle them. If they're good, Mm. it fuels my ego. And if they're bad, it makes me want to like kill me and the person who wrote the bad review.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Who who wins in both of those situations? Who wins? So next album you make, you're like, I am the greatest. Is that really
1: helping anybody? Yeah. like, And the the same thing with social media comments. I cannot read them because if you have a hundred people saying nice things and one person says a not nice thing, that one person, it's like... I'll replay it for months. It's a loop. Yeah. I mean, I still remember like one of the last reviews I ever read was probably like 15 years ago and what's funny is management company, whatever they'll send me reviews. And I'm like, don't you know me by now? Like, I don't <laughs> want to know. I, and it's not like I'm enlightened and above it. I can't handle. Like, I'm like, it's Tom, like the lawyer and the Tom Cruise movie. Like I cannot handle the opinions.
0: <laughs> you can't handle the opinions. <laughs> I
1: absolutely. I recognize I can't handle vodka. I can't handle cocaine. I yeah. can't handle reviews. I can't handle social media comments. Like, I'm too much of like a big gelatinous sissy to actually be able to deal with these things in a healthy way.
0: I totally understand. I I unfortunately have that for alcohol. I haven't uh, had a drink in three years, which I'm proud of, but I also have it for chocolate cake. Unless shout out to little pine. If I go to little pine and get a dessert in that setting, I can have one and be done. But if I just have a cake on my counter uh, goodbye cake, like I'm taking that cake down.
1: Maybe yeah, not the whole I mean, cake. I don't know if there least... is such a thing as like a chocolate cake 12-step
0: program. But
1: remember, the, think... doors are always, the doors are always open.
0: <laughs> I mean, I definitely have some of that going on for sure. I wonder if your compulsive nature, one of the first things I wanted to ask you was like, I just to relate, not to try and compete, obviously. I used to love, I had a four track. I had one of those little task cams. And I would go
1: on because that was like with a lot of musicians. That's the first thing we all started out with for recording music.
0: Isn't that the best? It was. um, Well, I could tell you the year it was. It was probably 1992, 93. Oh, so
1: it's a fancy one.
0: Well, I mean, I don't know if it was fancy. (laughs) It had a lot of knobs on it. But it was a little guy about the size of a Super Nintendo. And I would go in the garage and I was in a band. But my favorite thing to do. Was to make music by myself. So I would play the drums first and I'd be singing the song in my head. It was very lo fi. If the drums came in later, I would just fade them up later, you know, but mm-hmm. they, they would be playing the whole time. I, who am I telling this to? I'm saying that to the audience. Um, but I really loved the seclusion of it. That was a, a healthy use of my compulsivity. I loved trying to get it by my own standards perfect. A lot of times I wouldn't even play it for people. But I wonder if you could speak to your enjoyment, if I am presupposing that your enjoyment of the process, the the aloneness of it, the you don't even re, you haven't really been touring much lately, and I'm like, wow, life goals. You do it and you release it and you do it and you release it, but you don't have to like prove it in front of large groups anymore. Can you speak to the process and the solitude and the compulsive of it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I had a very similar. Similar to what you're describing, like I grew up playing in bands and then I guess it was 19, 1984, thereabouts, early, early to mid 80s. I borrowed a four track from a friend of mine and suddenly I realized like, oh, I don't need other people.
0: This is this is stand up comedy man. I was doing improv and then I was like, "Oh, you can just do stand up?" Like, "Oh, I don't yeah. need a team?" That's what that's what's happening. I love it. And so, I
1: still I love making music with other people, but 99% of my creative time is spent by myself almost monastically. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, whether it's writing or working on music and it's a it's interesting cuz like, you know, regarding people's musical output and i'm stating the obvious you can very broadly say people either make music by themselves or they make music with other people like by definition there really isn't a third option
2: Mm -hmm.
1: i guess you could pay other people to make the music for you but Mm. um and then i think of like bands who are about being a band like you listen to led zeppelin or you listen to oasis or and like you can tell like the music that they're making is so convivial you know and it's so gregarious and it's about this gang and it's about this band and I remember a long time ago thinking to myself like oh if I went down that route it would be more fun
0: Mm -hmm. just like improv is more fun than (laughs) stand-up
1: yeah like I would it would definitely be more like cause I've had those experiences as you have as well as I'm sure a lot of people listening, like you're with a band and you sure it's annoying sometimes waiting for the, you know, idiot drummer to show up, but like, you know, it's fun. And then afterwards you go out and get pizza or or you get drunk or, you, you know, like you hang out and you watch Ren and Stimpy after the rehearsal, like, you know, this it's is why there fun. are no
0: there are no buff improvisers. <laughs> There's buff stand-ups, <laughs> but there are no really good shape improvisers because they're all eating pizza after the show. Yep. They're hanging out. It's a social thing. I also want to point out stand-up is more fun than improv, but it goes both ways.
1: <laughs> um and I realized like, okay, by making music by myself, I will never have that gregarious experience. Mm-hmm. But and this is just I'm only speaking for myself. What I can do creatively as a solitary person, you know, you lose the influence of other people, but you can go to places that you can never go in a group.
0: I couldn't and agree I, more. And it
1: doesn't mean it's yes. doesn't mean it's better. I'm not even saying that I'm good at it. I'm not saying that I go to magical places, but I go to magical places for myself. Yeah. You know, and you just realize like okay, you know, I can't make dazed and confused by myself, but I can get to these sort of almost solipsistic monastic places by being a solitary musician that it's worth the trade-off. Like it's not as much, it's not as gregarious and fun, but it feels more like, I don't know, there's, there's, it's hard to, and I don't want to use hyperbole to describe it because I'm talking about myself and my experience. And that would be weird, even if I'm thinking those things, Um, (laughs) but yeah, just, you can get to a more potentially sort of like special place, which if you think about it, a lot of, you know, a lot of interesting, you know, spiritual writers, artists, musicians, writers tended to be very solitary. Mm -hmm. You know, there's something to be said for like, You know, like think of like Zarathustra, you know, like you don't stay in the village. You go up the mountain to your cave. Right, right. And it's lonely and it's cold and sometimes it's shitty and you doubt yourself. But what you experience in that cave, you can never experience in the little village.
0: I love that so much. And I you didn't want to say it for yourself. I'll I'll add some uh, verboseness to that. Our dreams are so amazing and we make them on our own. And when we were saying earlier, you're a drop of water and you go into the ocean, your personal access to all creativity (laughs) is best accessed, as you said, in that monastic way. One of my, uh, another great teacher of mine, Richard Rohr, who's a Franciscan, says that when he would go on these um, Lenten retreats or he'd go on like a, 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 a few months alone, He would always come out and say, I never need to read a book. I never need to have a conversation. Everything I know is already inside of me. And I have to think that that is a place that you're tapping into in the quiet, in the same way that writers are trying to get into that dreamy place. And I was wondering if you are visited. Let's just get up our own ass. Are you visited by melodies? Are you visited by beats? I mean, Morningside, it... I'm not just saying this to fluff your fluff, your butternuts. It it sort of took my breath away because it's sort of like a slow guitar sound. And then the, the, the rhythm, the, what did you call it? The thing that, uh, it's not, it's not a, it's not a xylophone. It's a, it's a marimba, a marimba, but the marimba is almost like, double time or maybe even more than the guitar. So the guitar is very slow and dreamy. Then mm-hmm. in comes the marimba and it's kind of faster or, or more notes per measure. And then the drums, the doubled up drums, the electric drums, and then the real time drums are the, the proper kit. I was listening to it and not to be too woo woo, but I really felt it like in my throat. I felt you could call it my throat chakra was really opening up. And I was like, this feels like magic. Moby is casting a spell on me. You made a sound that when I heard it on YouTube, so not vinyl, <laughs> I wasn't sitting in a comfortable chair. I was sitting right here on this bed and it had this very profound effect on me. So of course, like a wizard or a monk, these things have to visit you in, in a magical way. Can you, can you speak to that? Do they show up?
1: I, that's an, it's a wonderful question. I, I don't know. Mm. <laughs> um, all I know is that I work a lot.
2: <laughs>
1: I and, love it. And it's, and it's, it's funny because it's, you know, like similar to you, similar to a lot of people listening. Like I grew up obsessed with music and I started playing music when I was nine years old as a way to be a part of the world of music. Like I just was like, wow, there's this thing that's music that affects me emotionally. And somehow by playing guitar, I get to be a part of it. Mm. Even if it's just sitting in my bedroom playing, you know, sex pistol songs, it's like, I get to be a part of, I get to be somehow associated with in my own mind, this world of music. But as a result, I've never thought of it as my job. Like, and I've almost been dismissive of music because it's so powerful. You know, I'm like, I'm like, how can this be work? You know, like how can mm. this be? And as a result, in the course of my life, entrepreneurially, I've gone out and done a whole bunch of other things because I was like, well, I need to go out and work. Like, music <laughs> isn't work, even though I spend 120 hours a week working on it, it's not work. And one of a couple things helped me. One, you know, Oliver Sachs.
0: Uh, I, the name is familiar, but why
1: Oliver Sacks was a neuroscientist and he, the movie awakenings is based on him with Robin Williams and Robert De Niro. Um, He wrote this amazing book, the man who mistook his wife for a hat. (laughs) Um, And he started this organization called the Institute for music and neurologic function. And I became a board member 20 years ago and up until that point, I had always thought music was like fun and frivolous, but I, I, like I loved it more than anything, but I never took it seriously and mm. What he and his partner, Dr. Connie Tomeno, showed was that music is this utterly profound healing modality, like it decreases stress hormones, it promotes neurogenesis, it strengthens the hippocampus um, You can tell i 've spoken about this because I sort of feel like i 'm doing an infomercial, but that was my first inkling that music was more serious or more powerful than I was giving it credit. Yeah, like a spell. And and then only in the last couple of years did I finally admit to myself, like, oh, you know, the thing that I spend all my time doing, the thing that I, I love more than anything else, is that's my job. Mm. You know, and especially. It, it just seems so weird because I don't want any remuneration from it. Like I don't go into my studio thinking, "How can I write a hit that's going to make me money?" It's like, and this is where I feel like this is a safe space. But it's, how can I go in and connect with God? How can I go in and expose things and experience things that I cannot expose or experience otherwise?
0: That's exactly right. I love that. You know, and I- it still it still feels
1: weird. That, like, that something that I love so unconditionally is my job. Like, I just don't, I don't, that that seems odd to me.
0: (laughs) Well, Elizabeth Gilbert made this really good point where she was like, be careful of making what you love into your job because you'll grow to hate it. So I think it's very, it speaks well to you. You don't overthink it. So when I'm like, hey, do you think it's this, this, and this? And do you think it's like a magical thing? And they visit you and you're like, I don't know. Because you don't want to make eye contact with the deer because the deer will run away, you know, so you don't want to strap it down too much, and you also don't want it to feel like work, even though it can be your livelihood and
1: and sort of thinking of like like who are the role models you know, mm. and for me, they're the people like Flannery O'Connor or Solzhenitsyn, mm. you know the people who just like every day went to work
2: mm.
1: you know Henry That's Moore, whomever just that that like. Every day you wake up and you go to work. It reminds me of like that, that famous Zen saying of like, before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood, carry water.
0: That's right. That's right. But it's not after enlightenment, sit in a beanbag chair and look at a lava lamp while you take ecstasy. Like that is sort of going back to what you're saying, that it's like a clue, persistence, um sticking to something following it through following an impulse answering the call I guess you is a is a gentler way of saying it like these seem to be things that are very They anchor the human experience you get a call. Do you answer it? it Joseph campbell would call it the call to adventure. So you want to spend time With god, which I of course you're absolutely right. This is the safest space imaginable to say that because even sound, the universe is waves, right? Somebody that loved surfing was like, waves are the only wave forms that we can interact with as waves. That's why they loved surfing. But mm-hmm. sound is a wave. Obviously, you know this. Alan Watts pointed out that when you sing a note, ah, what you're actually hearing is, oh, oh, it's two things merging together. So even that is a clue of the yin-yang in and out. And, and God being the word, the, the, the sound, the bang, the explosion. So playing with music is playing with God. Who else could you be playing with? Moby, um, who else could you be playing with?
1: <laughs> well, it's funny. I had dinner with Sam Harris a couple of years ago. Oh, wow. Sam, Sam Harris, the big famous atheist.
0: atheist? Yes, I was going to say big atheist.
1: And I kept using the word God in our conversation. And I felt really bad because like, he and his wife were not happy with me for using that word. Like they were, you can tell, like they were actually annoyed and sort of like a little bit put out that I kept using the word God and I tried to explain, I said, I said, yeah, I don't know what the word God means. Right. You know, like, like for example, you know, you know what the the 12 steps are obviously, right? Mm -hmm. So the third step is made a decision to turn our life and our will over to the care of God as we understood God. Mm Mm-hmm. And when I did the steps, I encountered that and I wrestled with it. And finally, I sort of threw up my hands and I said, oh, the God of my understanding is a God I do not understand. That's right. You know, and so I used this word God to mean quantum mechanics, to mean puppies, to mean cellular division,
0: mitosis, to mean Anything I love that you said cellular division, that is always my go to one thing becomes two it's a miracle, yeah. it's a goddamn and, miracle, and we're all like, yeah, that's where life comes from. that's a fucking miracle, yeah and,
1: and so but unfortunately, I, and I ended up agreeing with Sam Harris and his wife that by using the word God, it is the most loaded word in human history, right, and I use it in a very cavalier way because if it makes me think of in the beginning of, I haven't read it in a long time, but The Idiot by Dostoevsky.
0: Mm, I haven't
1: read it. Prince Mishkin, The Idiot, is on a train with a priest and an atheist. And they're both arguing about like either for the existence of God or against the existence of God. And then they turn to The Idiot, Prince Mishkin, and they say, what do you think? And he says, I think you're both wrong.
2: Mm, mm,
0: And
1: that's to me, it's like, you know, I think atheism is wrong, and I think theism is wrong. I think, you know...
0: Oh, my God, Moby. You are my dream guest. I'm just loving this. <laughs> it I, it's, just, you want to be hollow bamboo. I, I was just writing this the other day. I was like, you don't believe in God? I was like, good start. Can you believe in nothing? Can you drop all concepts, including the concept of yourself and other? You'll end up in a pretty woo-woo spiritual place. But we're actually in the... It, the spiritual path is a process of unlearning and forgetting, or at least I... I sort of feel in my own experience that it should be. I couldn't, couldn't agree more.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So the, but it's definitely, it's a strange place to be when you know, when you know nothing.
0: That's it. Be the idiot. I've been reading the book, uh, the Tao Te Ching a lot. And it says, my mind is simple, like an idiot. I mean, that's, that's in this translation that I was reading. And it also says, Before the universe, there was, uh, I'm going to butcher the Tao Te Ching right now, but they say, for lack of a better word, I call it the Tao. Stephen Mitchell says the same thing. He goes, for lack of a better word, I call it God. We do have Um, to have respect that people are murdered in the name of God. People are sexually assaulted in the name of God. Terrible things happen in the name of God. So I understand the sensitivity, but there's also like a, a power. It sounds like you and I were both raised Christian For me personally, in reclaiming it and saying, "like no, this doesn't mean that," this doesn't mean that. When I say it, it means puppies. It means mitosis. It means it means doubt. It means atheism. It means everything. It's it's the the yearning of the universe to exist.
1: Well, the Tao Te Ching is really, I mean, as far as spiritual literature goes, it's certainly one of the most remarkable. You know, I mean, you know, that opening, the opening line of, you know, the Tao that can be understood or the Tao that can be spoken is not the eternal Tao. That's it. Like, like it's so great in a way. Like, imagine any other belief system or any other book saying, okay, here's a book. By the way, the opening line, we're going to discredit anything we're going to include in the book. That's right. You know, like, I'm going to write about the Tao, but keep in mind, if you can write about it, it's not. I'm not real, you know. It's terrible st- mark
0: terrible marketing.
1: <laughs> and it took me a long time in the Dao De Ching to understand the ten thousand things. And I was like, oh, that's physical reality. You know, that's because mm. mm-hmm. he keeps talking about like the mother of ten thousand things, and that's the you know, the, the mother of quanta, the mother of physical mm-hmm. stuff, the mother of matter. Um mm-hmm. but one thing I wanted to mention that you something you said inspired This like, you know, the idea of God being puppies, the idea of God being a redwood seed, the idea of God being who knows what was probably, again, similar to you. I spent most of my life looking for truth or looking for, you know, the right spiritual path. And so for me, that meant being a Taoist, being looking into Sufism, studying Hindu, um, I have a weird family where like half of my family is Jewish and half of my family is Protestant. So like, I looked into Judaism, I looked into Protestantism, look in looked into atheism, look into hedonism, look into everything. And finally about 10 years ago, I suddenly realized I was like, Oh, all of my searching, which has been interesting has been looking at other people's words you know, like mm-hmm. basically, my spiritual search was reading other people's ideas about spirituality, mm-hmm. which is which can be great. You know, like some of the people that you, that that you know that you've mentioned, um, like Alan Watts. I mean, Thomas Merton. You know, like I mean, these. I forget the Franciscan you mentioned, but
0: Richard Rohr. You'd so, love him.
1: So ten years ago, I had this wonderful self-evident realization which was, okay, I'm going to continue to read other people's words and continue to read other people's ideas about the divine or the spiritual life. But let me ask a question of myself. Through my flawed subjective understanding, what do I see the divine doing when no one is paying attention? Mm. And the first thing I thought of And it sounds so easy. It's an easy thing to dismiss. The first thing I thought of was
2: puppies.
1: (laughs) And I was like, I was like the universe, no one can debate the fact that the universe makes puppies, right? Puppies (laughs) are, it's a fact. Puppies are an objective fact. You cannot, no one can say that there's a theoretical puppy. Like there's nothing theoretical about puppies. And my question was, okay, okay. So if the universe makes a puppy, what does that tell me about the universe that it's, you know, that it's capable of making this? And I just simply Mm. thought like a malignant or indifferent universe simply wouldn't know how to make a puppy.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it's so beautiful. It's a clue in the same way that diversity is a clue. I I wrote this thing. uh, It actually ended up on The Simpsons. I got to give a sermon as a character on The Simpsons. And I was, they kept it in uh, to my shock. I was so touched. but I was like, we go around trying to turn everyone into the same kind of flower as us. Like, Like you growing up in Connecticut, me in Boston, I was like, I'm a daffodil. Let's go and make the world daffodils. But when you look to answer your question in another way, what is the divine or the mystery doing when no one is watching? It is celebrating and nourishing diversity. Good diversity, diversity that seems bad, meaning thorns, meaning black holes, meaning mm-hmm. death. It, it, it It's something that we misinterpreted in my church so much that Jesus said, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. For some reason, I think it's because my father took it this way. I thought that meant bad things happen to good people and bad people. But rain is nurturing. Rain is what you want, especially in the Middle East. You want some rain. It's saying, look, the divine gives birth to all things. The Tao in the Tao Te Ching resists nothing. It includes mm-hmm. everything. What is a bad man, but a good man's teacher? What is a, I'm sorry, what is a good man, but a bad man's job? What is a bad man, but a, a good man's job. What is a good man, but a bad man's teacher, meaning everything is in the game. It doesn't have to be all daffodils. It doesn't have to be all inhalation, exhalation. Death is okay. Uh, Adversion is okay. These things are no flaws in the system. And when we can shut off our brains, we can sometimes get to that place where you can accept everything. You, You see that reality is, and that's something You can sort of
1: have reverence. And that notion of systems, like, um, and that I feel like is one of the many ways that unfortunately our species has gone wrong is we've separated ourselves from systems that are billions of years old.
2: Mm.
1: You know, and thinking that we can improve upon biology, that we can improve upon nature. Mm and that is our hubris. That's our, that's our undoing is, you know, thinking that we can make, we can, we can help nature, you know, we can strengthen immune systems. We can, you know, cut off gangrenous limbs. We can do certain things, but that idea of replacing or supplanting nature, it's um, one, by the way, for your podcast, cause I, <laughs> I have another rule with myself which is I will I have never listened to a podcast. Sure. For one and only one reason, is that way when some guy stops me on the street and says I should listen to his podcast, I just say I've never listened to a podcast instead of saying to that person, I <laughs> will never listen to your podcast. <laughs>
0: It's plausible deniability. I'm sorry. Yeah. In my house, we just don't listen to podcasts.
1: Yeah, but I've never heard a podcast. I don't I know that you can hear them on Spotify, but I don't I've never and I <laughs> I know that they're great and I know that you know like most of my friends spend hours a day in the world of podcasts. So I have a very basic question. Yes. Because we're doing this over the Zoom? Yes, the Zoom. And I see the record but record light. Does that mean people will see this video as well? No sir.
0: This this is just audio.
1: Do you want them? Because I was going to. It was pursuant to what we were just talking about. This idea of systems. Um, I live in right around the corner from you in Los Feliz, and the house that I live in—it's a simple, pretty little house. The person I bought it from had torn out all this landscaping and put in grass, Uh which obviously has no place in Southern California, (laughs) and weird plants that also didn't make sense so when I moved in I tore out all the bad stuff and replaced it with pine trees and native plants okay and it has been one of the greatest teachers I've ever had because I I'm my I'm my own landscaper like I love landscaping I also love cleaning my house because I grew up cleaning houses with my mom so I'm a really good housekeeper keeper. Oh wow. But my landscaping I go out and you realize like my only job is to do a tiny little bit to help it along. Mm. And this is going back to what you're talking about is the relationship I now have towards things dying and decaying has changed so much. That's right. Because for example, when the plants lose their leaves, I let the you know, I, I maybe sweep the leaves underneath the plants because the you know, I mean The leaves, the death of the leaf keeps the plant alive. That's it. You know, it feeds the bacteria that sustains the life of the plant. It puts nutrients back into the soil. And it has made me realize like, oh, that system has been going on for three and a half billion years. That's right. Of essentially a sustainable system. And sustainability is such an overused word, but like at its core, like a system that can sustain itself. And humans have really separated themselves from that.
0: That's right. You know, not to have shots fired at Ricky Gervais, who I think is uh, wonderful and I enjoy so uh, all of his work. Um, he was saying on some late night show, he was like, the reason why I don't like religion is if everything went away, science would come back. But these stories wouldn't come back. And I was like, I disagree. I think the stories." are in the earth itself. And you can actually trace this. When we started planting crops that follow this uh, pattern, so they grow, they die, the seeds fall off, and then those seeds grow. That's where our myths started having more and more resurrection. So these stories, even though they may be mythic, come from as Joseph Campbell would say, the collective unconscious, the dream that we're all having in reality. So they are as viable, even though they may not be factual, that's to be debated, but the resurrection story came because the crops started changing. Like that that became mm-hmm. a motif that we saw in the earth and a way to say, as below, so above we started saying it's the same with man. And instead of saying it's like the same with man, we said it was the same with man and his name was Jesus and this is what happened because that way it got into our marrow. But just because it's not literally true doesn't mean it wouldn't come back. It's as much of a part of the human experience as, as I would say as math, it's, it's important. Not yeah, in the same I mean, way I, that math is. I don't want anyone misquoting me. I don't, don't build a bridge mm-hmm. mythically. But when we're trying to understand our place in the universe and the way that the whole thing works, mythology is super important. And I think it would come back.
1: Yeah. We love metaphor. We love stories. That's it. And we fully understand, like everybody loves Star Wars. Everyone also understands it's a story. That's right you know like no one there no such thing as like fundamentalist star wars believers right you know they don't you We know, don't like the gospel of luke and star wars like you 100% accept it it's fiction yeah that's right and the bible cuz i i used to be a bible study teacher and a weird kierkegaardian fundamentalist oh wow the bible makes so much more sense when you accept like oh it's metaphor like there you know like just like
0: you it- oh sorry
1: yeah, using stories to communicate things because you and I live in Los Angeles, one of the most densely populated, affluent places on the planet that only makes stories. Like, clearly, as a species, we love
0: stories. Mm-hmm. And they're not um, they're not optional. It's 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 like you learned about music. It's like this is doing this to the hippocampus, which I obviously pictured about a bunch of hippopotamuses in college. The hippocampus <laughs> is being healed by this stuff. In the same way, unseen things are healed and salved and developed and grown through stories. And the Semitic storytellers of the Bible, for example, knew that in the same way that you and I know what's what's true and not true about star wars you know we -hmm. know that the emotion and the and the feeling is true we know that when your aunt and uncle die that that's often when you go off on your adventure you know that that is true they're true this is what alexander shia one of my favorite guests on this podcast said he said they're true in the way that they report the way energy moves in the universe is true so it's truer in a way that's more than literally true. And I just mm-hmm. can't, I, I got to shout that from the rooftops as much as I can. It's true behind the scenes. It's like um, Santa, Santa Claus is true because invisible things are doing good for you. That's, so that's true.
1: Can I ask a huge favor of you?
0: Don't release this episode. <laughs>
1: no, no my, my favor is, can we take a 30 second break while I go pee? Absolutely. Because I had a giant, giant, giant pot of tea this morning because I'm old and middle-aged and from Connecticut. Um, (laughs) And as a result, I need to go take care of that and I'll be back in 30 seconds.
0: No problem at all.
1: Okay. And trust me, you won't hear anything because I'll be (laughs) doing it with a closed
0: door. (laughs) I'm back. That was great.
1: That was fast, too. I guess I had to empty my colostomy bag.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It makes it so much easier.
1: I um, go ahead. Oh, so I wanted to, you said something about Ricky Gervais, you know, basically creating this schism. And obviously it's a broad old schism between science and religion. Mm -hmm. And to me, there's no schism like, you know, science, science points to the divine. You know, like we were talking earlier about like mitosis, you know, like the miracle. And I use that word, who knows what that means, but like science, everything about science reaffirms my strange idiosyncratic faith,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: you know, and if, and if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Like if I die and there's some old white guy with a beard who says like, you were so completely wrong, like, you know, like the universe is Eight thousand years old and
0: <laughs> dinosaurs were our pets yeah
1: or if we die and nothing happens who knows like but that that idea that religion lives in its world and science and empiricism lives in its world that's just silly like yeah and, and when i hear people like and i like ricky um you know i really appreciate a lot of what he does uh but when i hear that to me that just seems like it's kind of like very old binary thinking
0: it's always buddy i can't i don't even want to go on too much of a tangent but i can't it's 2020 and you can't say you really expect me to believe that this all started with a snake in an apple i'm like get out of here. There's so many people of faith and it doesn't even have to be mystical faith that don't literally believe that. And that is the straw man argument where where you're burning down something because it's not literally true when it's, it's, is that to say that poetry and ancient stories have nothing of of value?
1: It's funny. I'm trying to figure out if you meant that as very sort of nerdy, clever, wordplay like you said the straw man argument and i was thinking of joseph campbell like the wicker man
0: oh wow interesting interesting i wonder if that was seeping in subconsciously
1: wicker man the concept and you know obviously the metaphor clearly not either of the movies as they're both terrible
0: yeah that's right that's right that's right i uh i actually wanted to thank you i didn't have a lot of things that i wanted to say other than i think you're incredible i love the new album i should have said that um in play which was like a lot of people where i found you the most impactful thing wasn't the music it was the liner notes something that we've sort of lost because here i was play came out in 96
1: 99
0: 99 okay so i was uh 19 or 20 And I was in a very precarious position because I was at a place where I just wasn't comfortable. Even though I was a Christian, as I was starting to do stand-up and stuff, the last thing I would want to do is say, I love Jesus. It's his followers that sometimes (laughs) rub me the wrong way. In fact, I tried it on stage, Moby. I was on stage in Brooklyn. Uh, I was at Union Hall. I don't know if you've ever been to Union Hall. Mm Um, so downstairs from the bocce course, there was this great show that Eugene Merman ran. So it's a very hip show. And I just wanted to try a new bit. And I was like, it's not football. Cause I'm not a sports person. I was like, it's not football. It's the fans that freak me out. And then I go, it's like religion. I love Jesus, but it's his fans that freak me out. But when I said, I love Jesus, it wasn't the audience. It was me. Like somebody unscrewed the pan on my car and all of the fluid just came out of my face and my body. (laughs) Like I started sweating immediately. I was terrified. And this Mm -hmm. is years after play. So I think, you know, where this is going, but that set this example. It blew my mind that somebody that wasn't doing quote unquote Christian music was saying, I love Jesus. Or, um, do you remember what you wrote in those liner notes? Can you speak to it a little? Uh, I don't, I haven't, probably
1: read them since 1999 so I don't fully remember but I know that
0: you, know, you weren't ashamed you weren't ashamed to say that you liked Jesus you just weren't into religion basically
1: yeah and also the idea of and maybe that and this is where a lot of Christians might not be thrilled with me is like that I love the character of Christ as it's revealed in the Bible I love the teachings of you know forgiveness humility mercy non-judgmentalism but I don't love them at the exclusion of other figures of other teachings. You know, like I I really love the Sufis. You know, I don't feel the need to say one versus the other. To me, that's like tribalism and competitiveness. It's like, you know, like I don't have a tribe, you know, like I'm not part of like, I don't want to treat spirituality like a football team and be like, you know, like, I'm on this team and everybody else is wrong. Like, no, you know what? I don't know anything. So how could I be right? And how could anyone else be wrong?
0: That's an ego trip, man. And if you read there's, I can't recommend it enough. It's called the gospel. According to Jesus, it's, it's Stephen Mitchell. He's he, he will have been on the podcast before yours comes out. And he did like this very academic and exhaustive search as a Jew, but like as a a Jesus loving Jew, Uh, you know, as a, like you, he likes all of uh, mysticism found the most credible passages of the Bible and wrote a very, very, very short gospel based on like, we are very, very confident that this is what he said. Mm -hmm. And what he said was, Oh, you would love it. I couldn't recommend it more. What he said is literally um, look at the birds, look at the fields. Don't worry. Mm -hmm. The prodigal son is in there. Of course, one of his hits, you know, that Mm -hmm. was his big, big uh, closer. And if you look at that it's always you can't divide infinity you can't divide infinity you're not just loved by god you are god's love you you can't go anywhere to hide from it who when they ask their father for a loaf of bread does he give them a snake just as you know how to love your kids or your dogs or your puppies or whatever or your music so much more so does the thing that started this know how to love you. And that doesn't mean things go your way. It just means you're, you're always with me and everything I have is yours, which is the closing line of the yep. prodigal son. And how we turn that into what it's become, I don't know.
1: And one thing that used well, I guess that continues to baffle me and infuriate me is like by way of analogy, I'm a vegan. I've been a vegan now for 33 years. Um, if someone says they're a vegan, but they love going to Burger King to eat hamburgers, (laughs) you might ask them, you might say to them like, wow, those two things that, that seems inconsistent, (laughs) you know, without even being judgmental, you might say like, like, wow, normally by definition, vegans don't go to Burger King. Like I, as a vegan do not go to Burger King. If someone identified as a vegan, but they loved going to Burger King, I might say, you know, you can't really be, do both of those things.
0: Right, right, right. So
1: why has Christianity been taken over by people who love war and materialism and judgmentalism? Like you couldn't craft, and I know this might sound, I'm, I'm, I'm saying this without indulging in hyperbole, like Donald Trump is an antichrist. Oh, sure. You know, maybe not the antichrist, but like, what do you call someone who erects gold statues to himself and is super comfortable with like, like utterly selfish. And I'm not even judging him. I'm just saying like he is as far from anything talked about in the teachings of Christ. Right. You know, there's no forgiveness. There's no mercy. It's just 100% judgmentalism. And I look at modern Christianity and I'm baffled by it.
0: Like, I understand. Yeah. Like Christ has an energy, a flow, a relationship, an understanding and a harmony with the universe. This is an anti that. That that yeah, is. And even just
1: saying, yeah. you know, like it is
0: and but the fact that
1: the media are not allowed to ask that simple question. Like right. if Donald Trump called himself a vegan and was eating hamburgers, some journalist would say, Sir, don't you think that calling yourself a vegan and eating hamburgers is inconsistent? Right. But all these Christians who are pro-war, pro-death penalty, pro-materialism, etc. Where's the media asking the simple question? Like, say to Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, whomever, Mitch McConnell, like, where in your legislative agenda mm. is the teachings? Are the teachings of Christ?
0: Right, right.
1: And it's just, it, it's mind-boggling to me that like the things that people have gotten away with. Culturally, legislatively, in the name of Christ, that have no foundation in the actual teachings of Christ. Like, it, it's, it boggles my mind.
0: I completely understand. The problem is, veganism, one of the things that's beautiful and simple about it is I don't eat animal products. I suppose we could say there are vegans that eat honey or dates, right? We could, we could split hairs there. But for Wait, the most date, part, dates aren't vegan? I thought a, a hornet has to die to make a date.
1: Oh, motherfucker. <laughs> Um, I'm not you... less concerned for the hornets. I'm more concerned for myself because now I have to question dates. Um,
0: but... <laughs> I'm so sorry. I really, I really hate to be that person. What, what was it for me? Oh, Somebody... figs. Figs. Is it figs? I think
1: figs. Something about figs and wasps. But I mean, okay. And I don't want to fall afoul of the animal rights community because I love all beings except for wasps and hornets. <laughs> <laughs> so like my. I'm a, I appreciate their ability to go out into the world and live their own lives. Sure. But I have no love
0: lost for wasps and hornets. Like <laughs> <laughs> what are you for? We hear Moby screaming to a wasp.
1: <laughs> yeah. like you know, and, and guess what? Wasps and hornets. you know what they do? They eat bees. They eat honeybees, oh, sweet, wow. beautiful, wonderful honeybees who are out just trying to like live and pollinate the world. And, if they're not being killed by humans and chemicals, they're being killed by stupid fucking wasps and hornets. So like, it just makes me hate wasps and hornets even more.
0: You don't mean Connecticut wasps. You, you not mean the my fly. No,
1: <laughs> not like, not, not my, my my inbred Daughters of the American Revolution wasps.
0: <laughs> I love that. I was a little nervous to tell you that I'm 95% vegan. I wonder what your feelings about that are. It's the, it's the Voltaire quote that, Obama paraphrased in his
1: first state of the union, like don't let the pursuit of the perfect be the enemy of the good.
0: Oh, back in a, I just, I think when you, I th- I think your tattoos are badass, but when you see someone with vegan for life on their neck, I get a little nervous telling you that occasionally I'll eat some ice cream or something. Even though I just told you at the top that I, I've been swapping it out for blueberries with great effect, but I'm not a perfect vegan. And I've always said on the podcast, I'm like, I want people to be included, invited into the lifestyle without feeling like they're kicked out the second they smell yogurt.
1: So (laughs) I, there's this organization called Direct Action Everywhere, and it's a very hardcore militant vegan organization. Mm. And I spoke at one of their yearly meeting conclave gatherings. And I basically said, I said, no one here has the ability to judge non-vegans. Like no one here... You know, you stop the infighting, stop the judgment. And I said, because I've been vegan for 33 years and none of you have. So that means during the last 33 years, at some point, everybody in the audience was eating a hamburger and I could have judged them. And I accepted it's not my place to judge. That's right. And as far as I know, the only people on the planet who were born vegan are Joaquin Phoenix and his siblings? <laughs> so unless you are Joaquin Phoenix and his siblings, you're not allowed to judge.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that's hilarious. I totally see that. Uh, we talk about that. The the people who quit smoking and immediately start breaking other people's cigarettes. It's like that's you. I even try to have compassion, or I, I every day actively i'm proud of this try to have compassion for people with different even extreme political views because i'm like that's me in different circumstances in the same way that you 34 years ago was the person that might be listening to this that's eating a big mac
1: it's it's yeah i i i aspire to that level of non-judgmentalism regarding like for example the last the last 6 months has been pretty challenging of course. As far as trying to be non-judgmental, yes. You know, like the lunatic right wing, but also like the lunatic level of people believing in totally made-up, unsubstantiated conspiracy theories.
0: Yeah, I know.
1: You know, and like it's it's one thing for people to be wrong, and this is—I know I'm going to sound like a dick, but like it's a lot easier to not judge people when they're not acting like assholes.
0: I know exactly what you mean. And, and please don't think that I'm floating above my little meditation cushion, just having mm-hmm. no problem. And I think there, that anger and, and rebellion can be powerful. I just always think of uh, Dr. King, obviously, and, and, and not responding with the same energy that we're being pushed up against. Yeah, I mean, trust me, I don't
1: like this part of myself. well this is the judgment-free
0: zone obviously
1: (laughs) i i really like i feel like the the, and i really hate this idea but like the next thing i really have to work on is to actually love humans
0: yeah yeah like
1: and i'll never like i'm i'm excluding hornets and wasps like that in this lifetime i don't need to learn how to love hornets and wasps but um humans that they're the biggest my for me that's my biggest spiritual stumbling block because oh. all the evidence is that like yeah we can talk about humans in a compassionate way but if you look at the actual consequences of humanity it's terrible oh no we're the worst we're the worst and it's really i'm like tr- like and it's easy to find compassion for some people but like ah uh, it's a real it's a It's a struggle to have, like, for example, I have unconditional love and compassion for all animals, even if they're trying to eat me. Mm You know, I accept like, oh, they are animals. And like, even if I don't like what they're doing, I still respect and love and, you know, have compassion for them. I don't feel that way about humans and I'm not proud of it.
0: Well, I I think that's, I don't know why I used your name just then. (laughs) like a therapist, Moby. Um, but I, I just think that's beautiful. I think that's important to include in these conversations because I, I I'm embarrassed to admit when I heard somebody said, hell is other people. Obviously heaven, the way that it's described by Jesus, going back to Jesus is always like a banquet, is always like a party. And I'm always like, that sounds terrible. That means like I haven't yet Stepped into the inner kingdom where I can see the interconnectivity between me and all things. But it's really, really hard, especially when people are oppressing and, and being horrible. Uh, yeah. So I, 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 we're not going to figure it out. But I, I think the vulnerability and the admission is so much more valuable than just pretending like it's easy for either of us to love everybody.
1: Um, so unfortunately, because I've, I have truly loved this conversation. I have to get going in a few minutes.
0: Oh, I, I, I know you do. And thank you for pointing that out. We, uh, we, do you have like two more minutes? Sure. Of course. Okay. Cause I want to make sure that we get this out. I'm looking at my notes. I have dungeons and dragons. Uh, you have a very interesting life. People should definitely read your memoirs because when I was researching you, I was like, Jesus Christ, we could do a series with, with Moby. You have so many interesting things about your life. The last question, though, because we get a little heavy, is can you think of a time in your life when you laughed really, really hard? Maybe the hardest time you've ever laughed. The hard. Oh, see, this is contrary to everything we've talked about. It's okay if it's a drug story.
1: <laughs> no, I'm trying to think of... So I have... The darkest of dark senses of humor. I can't wait. So I'm going to tell you an answer, and you're not going to like it because when I've told people this story, people, this is such a shitty. I, mean, I got to think of something else because my honest answer. I need it. I need this one, and then we'll do another one if you want. I need oh, this one. It's and I'm there's there's some dark stuff that I'm just not gonna like that I'm absolutely excluding. Um, sure, but so my mom died and everyone in my family has a sense of humor or had a sense of humor. And so I like to think that she would have thought this was funny as well. Sure. So my mom died in the autumn of 1998. And that in December, like December 28th, I was walking up second Avenue, first or second Avenue in New York with my friend, Michael and a bunch of his friends and my friend's,
0: I know Michael. What's that? I said, I know Michael. It's a dumb joke I always make. <laughs> as if I, I know this guy. I know
1: Michael. <laughs> um, so Michael, also like I have two or three friends who their appreciation for utterly bleak, dark humor goes as low as mine. Okay. And Michael is one of those people. And so we're walking up um, First Avenue, Second Avenue on our way to get vegan Indian food. And he looked to me and he said... Oh, Moby, what'd your mom get you for Christmas? Oh, that's right. She's dead.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love it. And not only did that, it made me love him, but it it I laughed so hard, oh. influenced and compounded by the reactions of the people we were with, because they were so horrified like they yes. thought that he had just done the cruelest meanest thing and I was like no that's comedy like that's fantastic so that is,
0: uh, Moby I that is not even as a comedian or maybe just my sense of humor even on the dark scale because when you're in a situation where you're feeling like an other right so you're feeling like there's this thing we can't talk about that's comedy's job to go, what did your mom get you? Oh, right, she's dead. Because you, you're you seen, you're acknowledged. The elephant in the room is not only pointed out, but named and told to leave the room. Like We don't want that. We want clean, fresh air between us. So I have to think in that moment, you went from feeling alone and other, the guy who's mourning, the guy who just lost a parent, the guy who's supposed to be sad, the guy who you're, you're supposed to walk on eggshells, and he says, no, fuck that, I'm your friend. I want to give you joy. You know my intentions. Here comes a joke to address the very thing that you need addressed, right? I mean, you needed it.
1: Yeah. And to that end, I would say in this era of at times warranted, but at times out of control, social justice warrior, political correctness, Mm. please don't for comedians don't start editing yourselves like let comedy be anything like let comedy be Lenny Bruce let comedy be Richard Pryor let comedy let comedy go to places that most culture cannot go and if it's offensive that's okay like it's mm. you know like as long as it's not stupid as long as it's not <laughs> That's right like, I love that. You know I mean but like comedy has advanced I'm not just saying this cuz you're also a comedian but like it has done more to advance us as a species than many other art forms. And I know that might sound like hyperbole. I'm being overly dramatic, but like, think of what great comedy has done. I mean, I'll just keep going back to Lenny Bruce, Mm. you know, like there's as far as, or the Simpsons or, you know, Chris Rock, um, as far as addressing issues, nothing is better And it makes me really sad that like the politically correct police might be trying to get comedians to shut themselves down and self-censor because, you know, like as a card carrying member of the ACLU, I don't believe in any type of censorship. Mm. You know, like, I, I believe that like the only way we can move forward is like you identify ideas and you talk about them and you laugh about them and you argue about them, but you don't shut them down.
0: There's always, it always frightens me the, the idea, which is very um, effective in war, basically, is like, let them eat themselves. Like, it's like, yeah. just leave them be and they'll sort of eat themselves. That's sort of what scares me about Trump is that, like, is that what's happening? It's just like, yeah, just leave that alone and, and we'll destroy ourselves. And, th- and that can happen in political groups and arts groups and all that sort of stuff. It's, it's very, yeah, just
1: all everything, basically, social media. I mean, a lot of social media is great, but a lot of it is just this endless, pointless, circular firing squad.
0: Right? Oh my God! What an image that is you a know, gift. Yeah.
1: And um, I, I it, it's it's mind-boggling the way social media, the way Facebook has torn us apart. And I'm not even criticizing Facebook. I'm criticizing the, you know, what we've, what so many of us have turned it into. It's like. Yeah. That's why I try to just like on social media share like pictures of cute puppies.
0: Yeah, and good recipes. I was going to thank you for your angel hair miso recipe. <laughs> I've been living um, off of that this week.
1: But so I have to get
0: going. But I feel like I don't want to.
1: We we've had such a wonderful conversation. I don't want to end on a uh, a down note. So what 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 last thing can we talk about? That's. Uh... <laughs> happier than the morass of the circular firing squad of social media.
0: do you ever play your own music and just enjoy it I do but only the ambient music I love it yes I love your ambient it's great to I hope this doesn't put it down but it's great to read to it's great to work to it's yeah that's love... the goal
1: it's supposed to sit in the background because like the non-ambient music I've made I of course like it because I made it I released it but whenever I listen to it I always think of how it should have been better
0: that's interesting yeah you know oh, like
1: I, even like technically like I listen to a song and be like oh I should have produced the drums better oh, I wish I'd written better lyrics I so almost all of the music I've made is a way for me to criticize myself
0: yeah that's um, interesting. except
1: for the ambient music because it's designed even that some of it I think I could have done a better job but like the ambient music just sits in the background and so I do mm. listen to that
0: yeah that's beautiful and light and when you were played Dungeons and Dragons, what what character were you? What what category?
1: I don't. I, I never got that deep into it.
0: I feel like you might have been an elf if you were playing. You you
1: at least had to choose elf. The, human. the last time I played Dungeons <laughs> and Dragons, I remember it so clearly. I remember who was there. It was Bill Armstrong, Chuck Weaver, and Jeff Gamble. At least I think was it. Okay, maybe Chip Moody. And it would have been 1981. Oh, okay, <laughs> so this is why why I don't remember too well. I think you that have
0: was, the. There's something about the solitary, like kind of elf making beautiful elvish art alone uh, feels right for you. So if you play again,
1: <laughs> yeah. So I loved D and D, but like I just remember that night, like it's it was the latest I'd ever stayed up. Like Bill's parents were going to let us stay up, so we. I think like. We had a sleepover and we went to sleep at like 2.30 in the morning and I'd never been awake that late. Oh, wow. And you would go on to be up that late a whole lot. <laughs> Thanks to music and cocaine, yeah.
0: That's right. Well, I'm so glad that you're sober for what that's worth. I just think that's beautiful and I'm so glad you're making incredible work. Uh, thank you for what you do. We close the show with the guest. It doesn't make any sense. It's just sort of silly. The guest says the, ca- the catchphrase, which is keep it crispy. Am I supposed to say that now you may, you can also decline like two people out of 550 episodes have declined, but it's up to you. <laughs> okay. So
1: I will of course say, keep it crispy, but I also want to know who those people were and why they declined.
0: <laughs> one of them was Chelsea Peretti. I don't know if you know, Chelsea, she's one of the funniest people alive. And I think she just did it because she knew it would annoy me. So Chelsea
1: um, is she, wait, Chelsea Peretti, Was she in the Palm Springs
0: movie? She might have been. She was on um, Brooklyn Nine Nine. Was okay. her show? She also so she did it. She, so special. she
1: she did it for this reason, so that she could be the one out of the four hundred ninety nine people who were refused. Yeah, basically. That's I funny.
0: mean, it is, and it was really, really funny. And I knew how. It's like your your friend's joke. I knew she was doing it quietly to delight me, and it did delight me. Yeah. Um, so, okay, so,
1: and then the other who I'm assuming is actually an asshole.
0: I can't, Katie, do you remember who else didn't say Keep It Crispy? I think it was two people. Jesselnik, Anthony Jesselnik. For the similar, it wasn't exactly on brand for him to, you know, he's sort of like, he's such a sweet guy, but he plays a mean guy on stage, so he didn't say it.
1: Okay, well, I am i don't know what the context is or if there's some sort of like hidden nuance to keep it crispy but by all means keep it
0: crispy it means just exactly what you hoped it would mean It mean this conversation was very crispy it was great okay good thank you okay, okay we'll talk nice. later really
1: really wonderful talking to you thanks again